Revelation 19. Let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer before I get into our text this morning. Would you join me? Father, we are grateful for your grace that strengthens us as your, your children, uh, your grace that enables us uh, to be called your children. And I pray, Father, that if there's someone today without you, that they would believe on you. Uh, you said in your word, and you're so good, that you give power to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to become the children of God. God, we thank you for your incredible love and kindness and grace, but we're reminded, too, of your holiness and your perfect justice. And that, Father, you are one who's coming. You're sending your Son back. And we read in Isaiah how that when the day of that Lord comes, it will come with cruel wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy sinners from it. We pray even so, come Lord Jesus. We know that when Jesus comes, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark from its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And Lord Jesus, you will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity and put an end to pomp and the pride of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. We say, even come, Lord Jesus. God, help us in this study to have the compassion that you do for the lost, to open up our eyes, to lift them up into the harvest, and to see, Lord, it is white even under reaping. And Lord, we thank you that um, you, by your grace, have saved us so that we are sealed and secure. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look in Revelation 19, and this is the return of the king. This is when Jesus comes back to earth. And it's important to have the proper perspective about the future because our perspective about the future settles us in the present. Our faith grows because we have a hope. We have a future, therefore we have a hope in the present. Imagine if you were on a cruise ship and you were on that cruise ship looking out at the beautiful ocean and enjoying all the sights and sounds and smells and the captain of that ship came over the loudspeaker system and said, hey, this is the captain, hope you're having a wonderful cruise. We want you to know that we, we, we want to make your experience the best ever. Uh, we've asked our chefs to prepare their, their favorite meals to do better than they've ever done before. We want all the entertainment to be top-notch, and we've asked everyone to give all they can. We want to make the experience for you as good as it possibly can be. Enjoy. Oh, oh by, by the way, one more thing. We're not going to any port. We're just going to sail out in the ocean in circles until we run out of fuel and food and water, and then we're all going to sink and die. How would your experience on that cruise ship be? It went from awesome to awful in just a moment because of what the future holds. For us as believers, we recognize that we have a secure future and that our Lord Jesus is coming back as king to take over this world. And we will sing with the saints, blessed be the God, this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. We are looking forward to that day when heaven meets earth and it's coming. We have a future, we have a hope. And our hope for the future settles us in the present. It's been said, those who do 
the most in this world, the most who do the most in this world, think about it, think mostly about that world. When I was coming up, there was this cliche. Not sure where it came from. It went like this. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Anybody ever heard that before? And I never understood that growing up. And I still don't understand it. Because my struggle is not being too heavenly minded, but being too worldly minded. And I think too many of you are too worldly minded to be any heavenly good. We better have the right perspective. Revelation 19 helps us with that. I want us to look at this passage because where there is no prophetic vision, Proverbs says, the people cast off restraint. Maybe you've heard the King James version of that. Where there's no vision, the people perish. And that passage has been taken out of context to say, unless you have a dream for the future, you really don't have any any way to live. But what what Solomon actually said was, where there's no word of God, where there's no prophecy, no hope for the future that comes from God, people cast off restraints, live any way they want, instead of living in a way that accords to God's will and God's way, which is the only way to live. Uh, I want to live according to God's will. One man said a long time ago, God's will is exactly what you would choose for yourself if you knew all the facts. If you had God's perspective, you would choose God's will, whatever that is. And so I want us to see this. And beginning with verse 11, we're going to note that when Jesus comes, he's coming back visibly. He's coming back visibly. I'm going to give you three words, and I'm going to give you some words throughout this message that help me to organize this text in my mind so that it would be more memorable, and and hopefully it will serve you well. Uh, And I want you to look with me in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so here in the first three words of that text, you see John say, then I saw, indicates two matters. One, you are moving from one scene to another. Already we have watched how that God has poured out his judgment on the earth through bowls and trumpets and seals that were opened. And now a new scene. And this, then I saw, is a new scene, a new scene. Also, up to this point, We have seen what has happened in heaven, and we've watched what's happened on earth, and they've not come in contact together. However, now, heaven is meeting earth. Heaven, for the first time, is meeting earth in the tribulation. What must have this meant to John as he saw Jesus, the faithful and true one on a white horse? What must this have meant to John? He's an elderly man. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He has one foot in the grave. He, uh, he's long past using his AARP card. I mean, he is long in the tooth, all right? And he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. And now he sees him. It's been a long time since John has seen Jesus. He'd eaten with Jesus. He'd fellowshiped with Jesus. He'd learned from Jesus. He'd been discipled by Jesus. He watched Jesus live, he watched Jesus die, and he watched Jesus come out of the grave. He went into an empty grave and saw just clothes and then fellowshiped after the resurrection with Jesus. What must have this meant to John to see Jesus again? John described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John said, we love him because he 
first loved us. John loved Jesus. He knew that Jesus had lived and he knew that Jesus had died and Jesus lived again. This must have meant a great deal to John who himself in a few short months, if not days, would also die. To know that as he looked into heaven, he saw the rider on the white horse physically, bodily, who was raised from the dead. Not only did Jesus live bodily, he lived again bodily. Romans 6, 9 says, we know that Christ raised from the dead. He raised from the dead, and when Jesus came out of the grave, he came out of the grave bodily. Jesus really died on the cross, really died and was buried, and physically came back to life and raised himself in the power of God to the satisfaction of the Father. We too have a hope then. We have a hope that we might live again. And this is what we know about our Lord Jesus Christ. When he came back to life, Paul says, death has no more dominion over him. So as we look at Jesus coming back to earth on a white horse, what can anyone do to him? He's already died and defeated that last enemy, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, death will never have a hold on our Lord again. What does that mean for our bodies? What does that mean for us? What would that have meant for John in his day, knowing that if I'm about to die, what will happen to me? Well, let me just for a moment dispel the notion that we have to wait until the rapture until we receive a presence with the Lord. At the rapture, we receive a resurrected body, a real body, y'all. We will have a real body, which means we will recognize each other in heaven. We will have a body like the Lord Jesus Christ, which was able to eat and to drink. We're going to have a perfected body, however, a perfected body. Aren't you glad for that? It doesn't matter how much skinless chicken you eat, how much time you spend in the gym, or how much... And man, I spent some money on supplements. And they're not doing a whole lot. But one day, a perfect body. Because my Lord came out of the grave bodily, and He's coming back bodily. But, for those of us who may not see the rapture, we're going to face our last enemy, death. And we're going to face that if Jesus doesn't rapture us out of here for sure. I remember going through Target with my one of my sons. He was young at the time when we were walking through the geriatric place. Um, they had some displays. And my little boy thought he'd be cute and say, yeah, daddy, you probably need to pick up some of this stuff. And I'm going to tell you what I was there. Embarrassing. But I just looked at him and said, yeah, but you only have to live long enough to need that. The reality is, if we live long enough, we're going to face death, if Jesus doesn't return. But when we face death, whether we're in a hospice room, a hospital room, our own home, or it takes us unaware, we have hope. Because our Lord Jesus Christ is alive, has a body, and we will have a body like His. In Colossians 1, verse 18, we read, He is the head of the body, that is the church, that is Jesus who is in the beginning, and he is the firstborn from the dead. Did you hear that? Firstborn from the dead, meaning that he's not the last. He's the first one to come out of the grave, but he's bringing many more with him. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23, after our order, we're going to receive later, Paul says in 15, an immortal body at the resurrection. But now what we know is this. If we die, 
We go to be with the Lord. Our spirit goes to be with the Lord. I used to work for a guy that was in a false religion. And in his religion, they taught that when you died, you went into the ground and you slept. And you slept until the resurrection. It was called soul sleep. And maybe you're wondering what happens to us if you die as a believer before the resurrection, before the rapture. And I can understand why there might even be confusion among us, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, the Bible says that when we die in the Lord, we sleep. And I'm very careful, even at funerals, not to use that language a whole lot. If there are young children in a family that's lost a dad or a mom or a sibling, uh, because I don't want them to misunderstand what sleep is. Sleep is a euphemism in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for death. And so some have confused that to think that when you die before the resurrection, that you go into the ground and you sleep. But the Bible tells us throughout uh, the New Testament, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'll give you an example. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and the thief was next to him and called out, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And what did Jesus say? In a few days, today, this day you will be with me in paradise. The first martyr of the Christian church is a man by the name of Stephen. We read about him in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, he is killed for preaching Christ. The Lord Jesus stands up to receive him. And in verse 59, Stephen says in chapter 7 of Acts, Lord, receive my spirit. The apostle Paul said that he was ready to go on and to be, depart to be with the Lord in Philippians chapter 1. When he did end up getting close to death in 2 Timothy 4, he used his language like going on a voyage. He was ready to depart this world to go be with his Lord. To be absent from the body then is to be present with the Lord. But one day, because we have a Lord who raised bodily, he promised us a body. We will receive a body as well. But I want you to see this. When I mentioned that he's coming visibly, it meant a lot for John. It, would mean, it means a lot for us. But it also means something for everybody. Everybody will see Jesus when he comes. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, listen to this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. I was walking down the street yesterday. I saw a lady with a shirt on. I don't know why I brought this up, but I'll bring it up as a footnote. She had a shirt blaspheming Jesus. I said, surely she doesn't know this text. Everyone is going to see Jesus when he returns. Everyone. Well, pastor, some people were dead and they can't see Jesus when he returns. No, they will. Everyone will. When John was writing this, he knew that there would have been people who had pierced Jesus that were already dead. Likely most of them were dead. Pontius Pilate died in AD 26. He'd been dead a long time. Pilate will see Jesus when he comes back. Caiaphas, the high priest who blasphemed Christ in a sham trial, died shortly after Pontius Pilate, also in the year 26. He will see Jesus when he returns. Judas, we know, died right after the death of Christ because he hung himself. Judas will see Jesus when he returns. Every eye will see Jesus when he returns. We know this prophetically. We know this prophetically. And Daniel, in the Old Testament, 
Daniel the prophet said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near and before him. Zechariah prophesies this in the Old Testament. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and they will grieve for him as one who grieves his firstborn. Now, Zechariah tells us that's going to happen. They're not grieving in repentance, but in remorse that they had not trusted Christ. He comes back, and I want you to see this aspect of his coming, Jesus, in Revelation 19. Every eye will see him, and he's coming back with his colors struck in order to lead into battle against all those who are sinners. Verse 14 tells us, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure are following him on white horses. Jesus here is seen as the king warrior, and he's coming back in order that he might exact judgment on all his enemies. We are coming with him. Why do I say we? Because we read here there's an army in heaven who are arrayed in fine linen, pure and white. And I believe that's the church. That when we read 1 Thessalonians 4 about Jesus rapturing the church, that he's bringing some saints with him, that's for sure. Those are Old Testament saints. And those who have died and went on to be with the Lord and will have a reunion in the air. Now the second coming, we're coming back as his army. We used to sing this growing up in church. Um, I'm in the Lord's army. You ever sing that song? I am in the Lord's army and so are you. But know this, know this. We're going to be following, and notice how, how we're arrayed for battle. We have fine linen, white and pure. Is that what you wear in the battle? Where's the camouflage? Where's the battle armament? We don't even have weapons. And the reason is, we don't need them. We're not going to fight this battle. Our King, Lord Jesus Christ, the warrior, Savior, is going to fight the battle for us. We just simply have to follow him. Did you hear that? We're going to be following our king when he comes to defeat his enemies. What does that mean for us today? Well, I want to remind you, if you're in a battle, and I'm sure many of you are, that what you and I are to do in a battle is to follow our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Following Him means to do what He says, how He says to do it. How do we learn what He says and how to do it? In His Word. And as we follow Him into battle, He has the victory regardless of what else happens. So I want you to see He's coming and John sees Him on a white horse. The white horse here is a symbol of overcoming. It's victory. Jesus, first time he came, he came on the foal of a donkey with his face set towards the cross, coming into Jerusalem where all the crowd lauded him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah prophesied in chapter 9, verse 9, that the Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming would come on a donkey, low, low and meek. But not this time. He's coming back as the conqueror, Christ, on a white horse. Which tells me, secondly, not only is he coming visibly, he's coming victoriously. Notice this verse 11 and 12. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. 
And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This is not the first time we've seen this imagery from John in Revelation. It is the uh, understanding that when Jesus comes back and judges, he does so purely. He's not a judge who has sinned, but a judge who has never sinned. And he's coming back in righteousness to judge those who are sinners. Now, now, there are 256 names that describe the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible Old Testament and New Testament. None of those names can exhaust his character or his being. But here we see that John says he's the one who's called faithful and true. The word faithful means that he is trustworthy. Real is meaning, meaning that he is true. It is the word that means real. When Jesus comes back, yes, he's coming back visibly, but he's coming back victoriously. And there is nothing in him that will be deceptive or beguiling. He's the real Jesus, meaning that you can trust everything revealed about him in his word, and he's trustworthy. You can build your life on him, and you can build your future on him. Notice this. When he comes back, he's coming back the way that we have been taught he is. He's real. He's trustworthy. And you can trust him in your life now. Whatever the disturbances of your life, are the depths of your dimensions of your life. You might say, man, you don't understand, Pastor. My life is complicated. He will uncomplicate your complications. Why? Because he's trustworthy. You can build your life on him. And he's real. Joshua said this. At the end of his life, Joshua, who uh, led the children of Israel after Moses... That's who Joshua is. In chapter 23 of his book, verse 14, Moses wrote about Joshua saying, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that your Lord God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. You know what John's saying? We see the one who's called faithful and true. Nothing he's ever said has failed. Nothing he ever said he would do will fail. He is the victor. In one word, he is the victor. He is the master of the universe, y'all. That's what that means. But I want you to see the majesty here as well. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Now, what is a diadem? That's a crown, right? That's a crown. And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, when you see that, don't think that he has some some writing in his thigh or a tattoo. It's a sash that we've already seen in Revelation flowing behind him that shows his title. His banner is this. He is not just king. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. There is none other. So here he comes with this robe and with this sash and then crowns on his head. We've already seen how that Satan is leading a coalition of seven nations. And they are uh, symbolized by having seven heads. And on seven heads, seven crowns. And every one of the kings of these seven nations, every one of these leaders are a power and they have a crown. But when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back on his head, he has many crowns. Not just many crowns, he has all the crowns of his enemies. You can recall when David defeated Goliath, that he went to Goliath, took Goliath's big sword, and took off Goliath's head. Why? Because Goliath didn't have a a crown to carry back to his king. So instead of carrying a crown back to Saul, he just said, well, I'll just take the crown of his head. Because that's what you did in that day. You 
took the crown of the king you defeated and you wore it, not only as a sign of your, victor- your victory over that nation, but that that nation now bows before you. So when Jesus Christ comes back, he has every enemy's crown on him and every enemy will bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. What enemies do you face? Look at the mystery here. I look at verse 12. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, which tells us that when we see Jesus, when he comes back visibly and victoriously, we're going to learn something else about him. There will be a new revelation in that day. Right now, there are no new revelations. We have the word of God that is revealed to us who Jesus Christ is. And what we want to learn about him is here. He is the word of God, as we will see in a moment. But in that day, we're going to learn something, a mystery. We don't know his name. I like that because on different occasions, I meet people who tell me they know the secret name of God. In fact, it hasn't been all that long ago that someone visited our church and afterwards took me aside and said, you, pointing his finger at me, don't even know the real name of God. And I just looked at him and said, neither do you. But I will. Will you? We have a mystery that's coming, and that name is the name he gives himself. It's not a name we come up with. I'm glad of that, because when it is that someone gives a name, it is because they have power over that person. For instance, parents give names to their kids. We didn't let our kids name themselves. We didn't want them running around with their own names. Thomas the Train. Cupcake. I mean, that's not the... We were, our, our third child was born, Sarah Ann, and we were in our delivery room. I'll never forget, Leslie won't either, um, of what the doctor said to us. And uh, he's holding the baby, he's holding Sarah Ann, he said, what are y'all going to name her? And we're like, where are we going back and forth? We're not sure yet. He said, uh, well, you know, unnamed babies cry all the time. So we looked at each other and said, Sarah, Sarah Ann, that's, that's her name. And no one gives God a name. Someone gave you a name. No one gives God a name. He's the sovereign. Now, he can give you a new name. He gave Abram the name Abraham, father of many nations. He gave vacillating Simon the name Rot, Peter. He can give you a new name, but he has his own name. Then you have verse 13. And here you have where now we're looking at the majesty of God, the ministry of his kingly nature. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and a name by which he is called the Word of God. Let me pause here so there's no confusion because they even read one commentary that said, see, here's the name of God that's the mystery, the Word of God. Not so fast. This is a characterization of who Jesus is that we've seen before. John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That clarifies the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the second person in the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is God. He's always been the Son of God, always. And God is the eternal Father, which means He's always been Father. You cannot be a Father unless you have a Son. There was never a time when God was not Father. There's never been a time where Jesus was not the Son. He's the eternal son. God is the eternal father. But what God does is speaks and he communicates. And Hebrews says he communicates in these last days through his son. Jesus is the communication of God. 
And John said, we saw him and we handled him with our hands, the very word of life. You want to know who this word of life is? Then you take the word of God and then you can learn about this one who is the communication of God. I like what someone said. This is not mine. But if you want to hear God speak, if you say, you know what God told me? Then give me chapter and verse. Because if you want God to speak to you, read the Bible. You want God to speak to you audibly? Anybody want God to speak to you audibly? Someone said, if you want God to speak to you audibly, read the Bible out loud. Look at the robe that decorates our king. Verse 13. His, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, some have said this is, again, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's died for our sin and he shed his blood. But if we just go to Scripture and find out why his robe is dipped in blood, then we understand. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 63, Who is this one who comes from Edom and crimson garments of Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. I have trodden the winepress alone, says the Lord Jesus Christ, prophesied by Isaiah. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I've trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood has splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of redemption has come. And the Lord Jesus Christ is stained with the blood of his enemies. You say, well, the battle hasn't happened yet. The battle hasn't occurred. Why is he now stained with blood? Well, this isn't the first battle Jesus fights. There are three battles in the book of Revelation. This is the last battle before the millennial kingdom is inaugurated. Everything we're reading right now is pre-millennial. By the way, next week we'll talk about what the millennium is. And we will see how some believe in a post-millennial reign, some an amillennial. But your pastor believes all that we've read so far is pre-millennial. Pre or before the 1,000 year reign of Christ. This is Christ coming back in judgment to judge Sinners at the end of human history. Life is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11 says. And he's coming then to exact the blood of those who rejected the blood of the cross. They've trampled underfoot the blood of Christ, the blood of the cross. And they will be slayed. We see how that out of his mouth comes a sword. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We sang about that when we sang Psalm 2 this morning. In Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is a victory that won't take long for Jesus to win. When he comes back, he's not going to have to fight at all. He's going to speak and defeat all of his enemies because out of his mouth, the word of God slays. Right now we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the word of God can bring salvation. But if you reject the word of God and his salvation, then the word of God also brings judgment. So he comes victoriously. That means he knows no defeat. There's no one who can stand against him. He has no rivals this is not a battle here in the end between good and evil. This isn't God coming and possibly losing an arm wrestling match. This is Jesus Christ coming back to take what is rightfully his that he won already at the cross. 
He's coming back visibly because he has no anonymity, no obscurity. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, not another God, not a higher power, not a God named another name from some other religious system. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone will know. It's not Allah. It's Christ, the Lord Jesus. It's not a higher power. It is the higher power, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone will see it. Thirdly, and lastly, he comes valiantly. He has no revival. The battle was short. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. It's a short-lived battle. Les and I have stood at Jezreel over the valley of Megiddo and saw lots of birds flying over. And I asked the Jewish person next to me from Israel, are there lots of birds here? She said, you need to come during the migration. You cannot believe the millions and millions of birds that make their way across this valley every single year. It's nothing compared to this. The beast deceased, verse 20, the beast was captured with its false prophet who's in its presence, who had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. The two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The beast who is the Antichrist and his false prophet who leads a false religion to Satan worship, they're going to be seized. They're cast into the lake of fire. They are done with. There will never be a a false cult led by Satan's man again. Sinners are slain. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, and Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 1 of chapter 20, Satan is bound. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. You notice how John says, here he is, the dragon, Satan. Dragon means he's... He's destructive. He's the ancient serpent that takes us all the way back to the garden where we see his deception. He's the devil. It's called the slanderer, the one who's the accuser. We see him doing that in Job 1 and 2 or Satan who is the adversary. No wonder we call him the enemy because that's what he is. You can hear the contempt in John's voice for Satan, can't you? Hell is designed for the devil and his angels. He's not thrown into hell yet. That's coming at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. But he is brought to the bottomless pit with a great chain. He, Satan, who has chained so many in the grips of sin that they've chosen, is now chained himself, seized, sealed, and he is shut out. This is coming. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming valiantly. He has no rival. I mean... This is why Jesus would say to us, don't fear, little flock. Don't fear, little flock. He would say, don't be dismayed. 
You look around and you say, I have a lot to be dismayed over. No, don't be. Look at our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the valiant victor. He is coming back. And that's why we don't have to get discouraged either. Lift up your hands. Don't be overcome by this world. Jesus has overcome the world. And he said, greater is he that is in you than he that's in this world. John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true. And in him, you, because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us a sight, a vision of what is to come when Jesus Christ returns. Father, may we today, because of what we know is to come to pass, not take this world as our encumbrance that cannot be overcome, but know that, Father, we have victory in Jesus and that our hope is in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.